0: Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Jack English and this is City Hall Stories. These are conversations with local government leaders who are imagining, designing and creating our future societies. Aspirational governance is the most effective way to build a healthier future. And this podcast is built to be a source of inspiration for anyone who looks out their window and says, let's do better. I hope the incredible humans you all hear from deliver that inspiration. Jordan's son has an incredible resume. Prior to joining San Jose as the Chief Innovation Officer, Jordan was Chief Operating Officer for the Special Operations Joint Task Force Afghanistan Technology Team, while also holding the rank of Major supporting the U.S. Army's technology modernization efforts. In addition to this, Jordan previously held Director roles at Siemens and is currently active in startup investment and mentoring. This has created a unique service-focused mindset that includes a wealth of operational and technical expertise. Today, we discuss his experience joining San Jose in the middle of the pandemic, how the city is pushing for unparalleled economic mobility, and the ongoing struggle with broadband accessibility. Please enjoy my conversation with Jordan Sun. Jordan, as we speak, the pandemic is about to metaphorically end, at least in California, with the state reopening tomorrow pretty much completely. You came into the role, however, right in the middle of the pandemic. What was that like and and why would you do that?
1: Yeah, Jack, well, you know, thank you very much uh, for having me here. You know, it's when I came into this role during the pandemic, you know, I was very much so motivated by the sense of purpose. I've spent my career primarily focused on uh, in public service, primarily focused on things abroad, uh, whether it's in the foreign affairs community, it's diplomat or uh, in, in the military with deployments and war zones. And so uh, when the pandemic hit, you know, it was just the sense of feeling that I needed to contribute, uh, that this was uh, my fight and I needed to do something about it. And so I took a sabbatical from Tech uh, in order to join the city of San Jose. uh, And I've been very much so a a fan of Mayor Sam Licardo and joining his team, uh, especially since he was uh, such an early mover And so many issues that became front and center for us, such as bridging the digital divide here in our community.
0: And why is the mayor of San Jose so unique? What is it about his belief or his vision that is, I guess, particularly drew you in that maybe at this stage, we're not seeing replicated across the U.S.? What's unique to to his leadership?
1: Yeah, you know, I, I would first take a step back and take a look at really what is San Jose. You know, we are the largest Uh, city here in uh, Silicon Valley. We're the largest city actually in Northern California. And our demographics, we have over a million residents here. Uh, Our demographics primarily skew towards people of color. uh, And 40% of San Joseans are actually born abroad. And so we have just a very unique melting pot of diversity, coupled with this Burgeoning tech sector that represents so much of the the industry aspect of our city, and so Mayor Sam Licardo is is quite unique as the mayor of uh, San Jose, as the capital of Silicon Valley, as as our 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 slogan goes. But um, he's unique in the sense that he's able to really understand the opportunities uh, here in tech, but also look at ways to address the gaps that also exist. In our community. And he always reminds us look, you know, you have to think from our residents' lens. And also, especially during the pandemic, you really have to think from our most marginalized community members. You know, how can we really improve their lives through technology and, and through giving them access and their children access to opportunities uh, for economic mobility and, and opportunities to compete?
0: So we're going to dive into those topics in more detail, but going back a little bit you mentioned you spent some time in, in war zones and I think specifically Afghanistan and to a layman like myself I don't really have any idea about what people do over there that aren't kind of on the front lines in the trenches so would you mind talking a little bit about what actually you were doing and potentially even maybe how that set you up for what you're doing currently
1: yeah Jack you know it's my, my military experience really has spanned a, a few different career pivots you know, I started out in a very traditional or or what we call conventional uh, army uh, as an infantry officer. You know, I was very fortunate in my early twenties to be leading troops. And so at any given point in time, I had 40 soldiers that I was in charge of directly. And so very early on, it taught me a lot about the importance of leadership, but also management and having systems and processes in place. Um, And on a leadership aspect, it's about, you know, leading uh, by example, never asking others to do things you aren't willing to do yourself, Uh, learning how to be able to also build culture, uh, which actually became paramount uh, as we think about managing remote teams in the pandemic. Uh, And then I spent a few years in in the foreign affairs community as a foreign affairs officer with the Army, uh, primarily uh, in Japan, and really, that was my first taste actually with local government, where we were often engaged with the local prefecture that our base was uh, was was a part of and part of their community, and really listening to some of their community's leaders' concerns with regards to military aircraft in the area. To Obviously, when uh, soldiers and other service members got in trouble with law enforcement or other situations that might have arose. And then, you know, fast forward, my last tour was uh, in a special operations technology role where I was out there building software products primarily for crisis response and enabling our African counterparts uh, to really take charge of the situation, uh, especially when it comes to counterterrorism.
0: So both, or I guess all of what you've just spoken about technically falls under the umbrella of the public sector, and, and so too does your role currently at San Jose. But I imagine despite both being very broadly in the same industry, there are some real key operational differences between managing teams, for example, between each of these areas. Are there any important lessons or any interesting differences between operating in the two that in your short time at San Jose uh, you've identified?
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it was an interesting move. This is my first time working for a political office and working for an elected official. Previously, I would say I would be more along the sides of, of on the execution side of things uh, of how government operates versus being on the elected side of things. This role has been incredibly interesting in terms of uh, the dynamic thinking that is required, because not only do we have to make programs work, uh, and we have to be outcomes based, uh, we also have to be considerate of policy, but local, state, state and national level policy for things such as broadband, uh, especially when it came down to the broadband benefits, the investments made that are most likely to be made by the governor's office here in the state of California, uh, and broadband to also then thinking about the local arena of of, of policies that are necessary to ensure equitable deployment of broadband access. I think the biggest operational difference is the fact that San Jose is a weak form of mayor system. We are one of the few Large uh, few cities here in, in in America that still retain a weak form of mayor system, and so there are very unique nuances uh, that often when I lead my team that we have to remind folks of things that we can do versus can't do, and where we have to have a healthy relationship with the city manager's office in order to ensure that the programs that are being pushed forward uh, are actually accomplishing the goals that we've set out to do. And the other part is thinking about it is that you know. My team right now, we went from three people when I first joined and we scaled it up to over 30 and it's 90% externally funded and through fellowships, uh, through grants, through universities. And so I've never been in a situation uh, aside from, you know, in startup land where I have to go seek external funding consistently government in order to not only get salaries paid, but also be able to accomplish the awesome tasks that we are expected by our residents and by the mayor. Do
0: those funding constraints really force you guys to be super efficient and accountable and ensure that every project has real tangible benefit behind it? Or does it feel more like a, an unnecessary or an unfortunate constraint of the environment that you're working
1: in? It's an interesting point that you made here about the constraints, because I actually think that it makes us much more accountable depending on the, the, the funding partner. I generally think of accountability and twofold when I think about bringing fellows on is one, you know, first and foremost, I have a bunch of, a ton of young people that are saying I'm willing to invest my summer. I'm willing to invest my uh, years, uh, you know, early on in my career to be a part of this journey. And so personally and professionally, I am accountable in terms of their years, their time spent in public service and making sure that they obviously get the greatest reward of experiences out of it and that they're able to translate that into impact. The other side of it is that, yes, you know, when it comes to our investors, as I like to call them, yeah, we need to be accountable for the money that they put in uh, in terms of funding fellowships. But more importantly, what they really want out of it is that the residents benefit, that we are tangibly moving the ball forward here in local government. And so it's a dual pronged approach to make sure that the folks that we bring on benefit from this career move that they've made and, and have trusted their careers with us. And simultaneously, the residents benefit and by de facto, then the funders, our investors will benefit as well.
0: Something that really interests me is is the paradox of innovation and in local government. On the one hand, you have those factors that you surfaced earlier around being answerable to your elected officials and by extension, your resident base. And those are often going to be very immediate concerns that you have to deal with. On the other side of the table, your office is tasked with innovation, right? Seeing into the future, seeing around the corner, and these are necessarily going to be on issues that your residents don't yet or potentially aren't yet even discussing or aware about and certainly may not have the answers that you need to be innovative. How do you go balancing being responsive to what's going on in the ground right now, as well as also looking 5, 10, 15 years in the future as to what your residents don't even know what they might need yet?
1: Yeah, you know, I think it's a balance, kind of borrowing an adage from very savvy investors you never want to be so too early either you know you're wrong in two ways either you're too early and you never held your position or you came in too late and i think the same is true with what we're doing here in government is that there is a responsible time timing factor that is really important but you're never going to quite know the future what the future holds and so the way we look at our portfolio, is that we very much so were, you know, or in the early parts of my time here in the USA, was just focused on pandemic response. So a ton of pressing issues that became surfaced by the pandemic, one of them obviously being the digital divide, the other being economic recovery and, and, and figuring out ways to support small businesses. And then now as we shift out of the pandemic, uh, you know, as you mentioned, into California reopening, you know, we have an opportunity to say like, hey, what are some remaining items that really need to be accomplished, especially since you know the mayor will term out at the end of next year. And so we have been strategically looking at that. We decided on this vision of building better basics, uh, which is essentially figuring out like what are the basic tenets that need to happen for a technology-oriented city to better serve our residents. And so the, we thought of three pillars. The first pillar is all things data. Uh, and really be able to have a data capability and data-driven approach towards government and outcomes, and especially when we talk about equity. The second part is better digital product management, because our residents have come to depend on us and our digital products for both services, but also information, critical information, should we come across another emergency situation such as the pandemic. And then the third is thinking about our IoT networks and figuring out a different set of network infrastructure for IoT that is maybe low data, uh, low bandwidth requirements to also thinking about more equitable deployment of broadband widely to ensure that our city is interconnected uh, and so that we don't leave any residents behind. But at the same time, we have a technology infrastructure that's in place for us to actually build and leverage applications on top of that.
0: So broadband is usually something we hear of as an issue for rural counties, but it sounds like it's a real priority for San Jose right now. Why does this matter for your residents beyond just being able to stream Netflix and HD? Yeah,
1: you know, it's, you talk to a city and local government, you know, they, or excuse me, cities and counties, look, they have, every city and county will have a different set of issues, you know, but more or less, they'll they'll, they'll also distill to a couple of things, which is, are you hyper urban? or are you rural? And so, you know, when you mentioned, yeah, you know, broadband for rural communities is an issue from both just thinking about, you know, the middle mile situation of infrastructure being available, obviously, all the way impacting, therefore, last mile for us here in a more urban environment, it's often more of a last mile consideration. And it comes down to several factors. One of the most significant barriers is actually the inability to afford Uh, Broadband plans, even if it's low cost, low cost internet plans that are offered by the ISPs, the internet service providers. The second is thinking about smaller gaps in digital that still remain, also known as digital redlining, where. The last mile solutions may not touch every neighborhood, whether it's mobile to actually, you know, the, the fiber and, and having access to maybe even beyond just one ISP provider for fiber or in-home connectivity. And then the third is just around education, being able to better educate folks on the safety, the security practices, what we call digital literacy and, and the ability for them to leverage the Internet in benefit of their lifestyle needs. Uh, whether they are a working professional, whether they are a student uh, or or whether they're an, uh, an older adult. And so those are the things that we really need to work on holistically. And I would say this is outside of the broadband package, but still now very much so broad, front and center, is the access to devices, affordable devices. Um, and so those are all considerations that we have to take into account here in urban environment.
0: Is there anything that the FCC the Federal Communications Commission for International Listeners, can do to aid some of this enablement or accessibility for local governments?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, there's there's work being done right now at the FCC. We've engaged with them, you know, before they rolled out the EBB, the Emergency Broadband Benefits Program. Prior, uh, you know, to the prior administration, you know, our mayor gracefully resigned from the BDAC with the FCC, uh, and, and, and stepped away from the commission because, you know, we didn't think how the industry and the commission were working together was actually enabling our ability to solve the digital divide at the local level. But, you know, look, I think there's a lot of opportunities to engage the FCC. I think it's really important as as we think about the FCC's role and and, uh, the new leadership that's present there. There's a lot of opportunities for us to work together. Um, Look, you know, the other part is us working with the state and more closely with the state, especially with the $7.1 billion proposal for, for broadband investments. It's, you know, it's a multifaceted opportunity where you're not just working with federal and depending on federal. You also got to work with your state partners, too, to make sure that everybody's aligned so that when money does come down uh, the pipeline, that folks know exactly where to deploy it, how to deploy it, and how to then measure outcomes. So
0: this digital divide and broadband accessibility also relates to something that I know the city is rightfully very proud of, its high level of social mobility. Can you talk about that and potentially what some of the factors that are contributing toward San Jose leading in this area?
1: So there's a lot of research, obviously, around broadband access. If you bridge the digital divide, the economic benefits it produces, not only in terms of the job creation, right, but also thinking about as you mentioned, uh, social and economic mobility. San Jose is uh, a leader based off of the work that Raj, Professor Raj Chetty did in terms of understanding in his paper of where is the land of opportunity and the geography of intergenerational mobility in the United States. I mean, he did this paper back in 2014, but, you know, the research study showed that San Jose was really leading economic mobility uh, at about 12.9%. In terms of some of the top cities, versus somewhere like Charlotte, and I'm not here to blame Charlotte or anything, but you know they were much lower at about four percent. That is based off of that's the probability of a child whose parents came from the bottom fifth of the income uh, ladder and being able to rise to the top one fifth of the income ladder. And so that's how they defined you know socioeconomic mobility. Uh, but there's multiple factors around that you know, when you talk about, you know, how are residents being segregated, when you talk about income inequality, when you talk about access to education, specifically primary schools, and then when you talk about sort of what they call greater social capital, uh, and that is the mixing of are you being able to mix with other folks who come from, you know, higher means or other careers. And and that's particularly true, obviously, Silicon Valley, children ideally can have greater access to professionals. At that degree. And the last is uh, family stability factors. And so those things collectively uh were the things that factors that they identified as you know drivers of of greater social economic mobility and intergenerational mobility.
0: Sticking with this idea of mobility, but potentially a more broad definition, the United States is seeing some real demographic change right now, geographically, age-wise, and a whole whole range of metrics. And one that's often talked about is, is California and even the Bay Area specifically. Curious your thoughts, how San Jose might be positioned as it relates to some of these broader demographic changes from you know regional centers like Miami and Austin popping up and potentially some of those more traditional areas like Silicon Valley changing their focus.
1: When it comes to sort of the exodus that we all heard about and saw during the pandemic, these movements happen, right? You know, you have a systemic once in a lifetime event, and that systemic shift causes naturally causes changes in population, even if you're just taking the economics considerations alone. And so, you know, people made their choices. But look, in terms of what's happening here in Silicon Valley, I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity. A lot of founders are still starting companies here. And I think the key difference is, you know, when, when this did happen, is that look, Mayor Sam Licardo reached out to, you know, a lot of our top employers, but also to, you know, other late stage and and growth stage companies like, Hey, you know, how can we be helpful here? I know you're growing your footprint or you're planning to grow, you know, how can we create the residential experience that you would want uh, for your employees, And the other aspect is, you know, I think it's totally okay for tech companies to go elsewhere. You know, you don't always have to be here in the Bay Area, but there is still a lot of tremendous opportunity in the Bay Area when it comes to the density of VCs, when it comes to the academic institutions that are out here, uh, whether you're in the Bay Area or Silicon Valley. And so I can't predict the future in terms of what pans out with Austin, Miami. I think those are great places to live. they are fantastic sectors popping up. I have a lot of friends that have gone there or, you know, travel there more frequently than before. And, uh, and only, I think time will tell.
0: So following you on social media, you have a real, what seems like multidisciplinary focus. You know, I see you involved in conversations on topics ranging from AI to healthcare to homelessness. And obviously you're now in local government. What drives what I would call this intellectual curiosity?
1: Well, I think, a lot of it is just when I give advice to people on career, kind of how I've shaped my own career, uh, it is very much so based on where is the mission, you know, and, and and the mission being what, how is the world changing and how can I be a part of it in terms of shaping the world into a better place for all human beings? The second part is thinking about, you know, how pressing are these issues and is this the right time to be involved in. And then the third is then you have to obviously decide whether or not you are in fact the right person to solve um, and are you the best in place? You are the person that's best in place for that. On the flip side of things, I also tell people, look, you know, I think gone are the days of people being experts and only experts in one domain. I think society these days, and as well as employers are a lot more flexible to people, you know, having different career backgrounds. And I think they see the strengths in that. And so I always tell, you know, I'm sure you've heard of the T-shaped career track where, you know, you you lateral across sort of different experiences, but you also have, a key sector that you're an expert in that you can go very deep in. I actually believe that rather than having a shape, you should have more of an M-shaped or beyond even additional legs. And so for me, I've been very fortunate where I've straddled multiple sectors where I've been able to go one or two levels deep in, whether it's in healthcare, uh, whether it's in tech, whether it's local government, and and whether it's in the federal government. And so each of them uh, lent me a different set of perspectives, but also gave me both a domestic and also international view of how the world comes together through tech, through industry and economics, uh, but also through public service and what type of good you're trying to create. So
0: having spent most of your career outside of local government and only recently coming into it and adding onto that, your deep relationships with the private sector, is there any low hanging fruit with respect to how these two industries can work together to address some of those common values or that common mission? You know, everyone at the end of the day wants to create healthier, more sustainable societies, but the public and private sector have very different ways of going about that. And you being at the heart of Silicon Valley might be able to answer this more than most. How can we better integrate these two industries to serve that greater uh, mission?
1: Yeah, I think, look, you know, I think people need to get out of their heads that it is not a uh, one pill solves all Solution that we're looking for in society, and I think often people try to go for that because it's easier to be understood and, and and digestible when it comes to selling it to the public. I think what we really need to take a look at, and where you know what I've learned in healthcare, is that often the systemic issues that you deal with in society are very similar to things like chronic disease, where it takes a you know a multifaceted, a long term approach to be able to solve uh, for some of these issues, uh, and it, and it takes a a set of solutions to be able to manage and solve these problems. And it starts with one, not letting the problem get worse, and then two, figuring out how to reverse uh, some of the symptoms of the problems and eventually the problem itself. And you also may have to live with the fact that the problem might always be there in a 1% to 2% factor. And so when we talk about, let's say, the digital divide, yeah, you know, there is a very strong possibility that 1% of our community will remain unconnected for whatever reason. But the key thing is, how do you solve for the remainder 9%? We have 10% of our community that is unconnected without taking an authoritarian approach to saying everybody must have internet. And that's just some of the borrowed lessons that I've learned. I've talked at CES before um, in terms of healthy buildings and healthy lives And when we think about sort of the future of our urban planning is that, yeah, you know, we do have to take into consideration these issues of public health that the pandemic has shown, but also thinking about it, not just from the perspective of epidemiology and preventing disease, but also thinking about the perspective of how do you actually encourage healthier communities when it comes to, you know, wellness uh, and and fitness, uh, when it comes to, you know, social interactions. Um, And so these are all considerations that we need to take into.
0: You might answer this specifically in relation to local government or just very broadly. What's most exciting you as you look forward in the world of innovation and technology in the next 5, 10 plus years?
1: You know, I think the most interesting thing right now in the next, I would say in the next 5 to 10 years is really seeing, you know, how much talent and how much emphasis government has made on the importance of technology you know whether you talk about, you know what's going domestically when it comes to things like privacy and local governments such as ourselves having a privacy policy for all things digital and data, but then also thinking about it from an international perspective of you know the the number of policies that are kind of currently being discussed, if not proposed, in DC uh, when it comes to great power competition between various nations, and so technology often now is front and center. What is most interesting to me, five, 10 years, is thinking about okay, is government actually going to get ahead of this enough to where government actually can make sound decisions and be very well educated, both the policymakers who are, you know, our elected officials uh, leading those discussions and ultimately making those decisions all the way down to the individual voter and being fully aware and as logical as possible in terms of assessing the pros and cons of technology based off of this use cases based off of the technology itself and based off of ultimately, you know, first order impacts, let alone second or third. And so I'm really excited given the amount of fervor and energy that has been going on for the last few years, whether it's in cyber, whether it's in AI, whether it's in, you know, something a little bit more bleeding edge, uh, whether it's in privacy and seeing how does this ultimately transform how government and the people understand technology. And hopefully it's not a fear-based approach hopefully it's not adversarial but it's more so in a constructive manner of okay you know here are the pros here are the cons let's make a risk weighted decision
0: i think that idea of especially the federal government potentially being more in a reactive and responsive stance to technology really resonates and a huge part about that is just simply lacking the requisite level of expertise to be truly up to speed and up to date with what's going on in the private sector As you've grown your office, I think, from three to 30 in the past nine, 10 months, what are some unique incentives that local government and government in general can provide to people young in their career that are bright and aspirational and ambitious that potentially isn't just relying on serve your local community? Although that's fantastic and will appeal to some people like yourself, to a lot of people, local government, you know, when they look at the dollars and cents or whatever it might be, just isn't as exciting or interesting as the private sector. And in that case, local government's always going to lag behind, unfortunately, the private sector. Is there anything when you're hiring, when you're going out, when you're talking to people that you can express about local government that gets them really excited and begins to have them think about local government as a career where they never would have previously?
1: My answer is not a very cookie cutter response in terms of encouraging people. Yes, you must, you should definitely join local government or, or even saying no. I think it's really, it depends, right? And so it obviously depends on what the individual wants in terms of their interests, their ambitions, their willingness and tolerance for risk, uh, as well as reward. On the other side of things is looking at when when someone considers joining government in their careers. You know, I've generally seen two things that really work well, right? Either you bring on technical talent early, and then they're able to solve a lot of your low-hanging fruit problems, But then they reach this intellectual and growth cap, right, which is the ceiling that they hit because, you know, you have middle-level management or senior management that might not quite be able to provide them the level of tutoring, uh, of mentorship, of guidance uh, that they would otherwise receive from industry. And so I think what we need to have is a balance of both people that have led, you know, on the front lines, product, engineering, design, and even customer success and sales. Uh, that understand how technology comes together and technology teams and products come together uh, to deliver solutions. On the flip side of things, you have to also have that raw technical talent of folks who are willing to be get you know, hands on keyboard to actually get the tasks done. And so I think that's where you're going to have that meeting of minds, where then you're able to actually give the younger generation an opportunity to really grow into larger roles in government, should they choose or else if you have just people going through one track, I'm just going to be a public sector person versus someone you know who's going to be a private sector person. Once again, you have the same issues that have pervaded our government for so many decades, which is the natural divide in just social networks alone of people who serve in government, only serve in government, and people who serve in industry only work in industry. And I'm really excited for this cross-pollination. And like I said, that next five, 10 years of what government and technology looks like I hope will bring us closer in terms of better understanding, in terms of career mobility, and most importantly, in terms of impact being delivered.
0: We have a, a traditional closing question here on City Hall stories, so I'll pose it to you, Jordan. What is one accepted truth of local government that you think is incorrect?
1: Mm, that's a good one. <laughs> I can tell you what's 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 correct is that you know often when you look at shows like Parks and Rec and I think there's a mayor show of of LA. (laughs) Often a lot of those shows capture accurately what local government is. But look, you know, I think people often look at local government as ineffective, as even lazy. I know at least from the pandemic experience, folks are working tirelessly and there are an amazing set of professionals here in local government that really deeply care about the issues they work on. And so they're going out in the field and they're also then going behind the computer to think strategically about things. And working local government for the very first time has really brought me so much that much closer to the everyday American in terms of the households and, and, and the issues that households struggle with uh, here in America. And I think honestly, I, I think that not enough credit goes to local government often in terms of a lot of the problems that federal government is often highlighted for solving. But really, the actual work being done is being done here on the front lines and it's done at local government.
0: Jordan, this conversation went all over the place in the best way possible. So really appreciative of your time and looking forward to keeping tabs on your career as you drive healthier communities in San Jose.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's me again.
0: Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed it, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts and connect with me on LinkedIn. See you soon.